don't know about you guys, but I've very infrequently been to a successful training as an adult professional. Most are entirely subpar. There's stale cookies in the back of the room, charred paper on the walls, maybe a couple trust falls. Now, while people do get new context and information professionally from interactions with coworkers and generally moving through their life, the fact is that we put a semi-religious importance on training to hand people new skills. Now, if the world of work is truly going to be shifted by COVID-19, training will seemingly be a much bigger deal in late 2020 and into 2021 and beyond. But we haven't broadly done it that well for a while. So it begs a work question and a broader question. How can we as adults gain and retain knowledge better? And how can we focus more on individual learning needs as opposed to flashy technology? My guest on episode 39 is my friend Laura, who's a learning and development professional. We're going to discuss this in both work and personal contexts. Let's roll. start like at the wide end of the funnel on that one. So the first thing that kind of, you know, that I'd like to delve into, the one thing that kind of burns my bacon, if you will, is at a time like this, or at any time where businesses um, experience a little bit of a downturn, the first people they let go of are the L&D people. And I, I kind of get it from a business perspective. You know, we don't turn any screws. We don't make any widgets. And we're not a revenue center. We are a cost center. However, we support and drive those people that do, you know, turn screws and make widgets and sell product and gain revenue. So to me, I kind of look at that and go, it's unfortunate fact that the L&D people get laid off more quickly. And so I wonder at times like this, I imagine quite a few L&D people are experiencing those concerns if they haven't already been laid off. However, On the flip side, at times like this, there's a golden opportunity for learning and development to really prove their worth and to come out there and support people and coach people on the adaptation, not only of new technologies or new products and and knowledge, but on new mindsets, because that's what we need, especially at a time like this. And I think the learning and development community in general could broaden its own mindset to help other people embrace new mindsets. So there's a great opportunity there for us to expand our thinking and prove our partnership with companies in a bit of a different way. And really learning and development people should always be curious. We should always be jumping on those bandwagons to learn what's new, what's upcoming, you know, what is happening in technology, how can we apply it? We don't have to know everything about everything, but we should be able to learn enough to be able to support people, to be able to recognize opportunities, to be able to upgrade our own skill sets. So we are always relevant and therefore always somebody who is providing value, maybe not a revenue center for the company, but providing value to the company. I will say too, I I did a thing with McKesson, which is a big healthcare company Mm -hmm. in the summer of 2013. And I was really into L&D conceptually. Like I really wanted to do it for a career. And I went to a a happy hour with a bunch of 
McKesson, Devo, and there were a lot of L&D people. And so that, that was about five years after the 2008 recession. Right. And um, I met so many people in L&D who were like, hey, it's a cool area of the world. But the problem is, is whenever there's a downturn, you're going to be like first or second on the block because executives like don't fully conceptualize where what the value is right and Mm -hmm. so that kind of like scared me off sometimes in hindsight I feel like I think that I'm like curious enough that I could have been good in those roles and in hindsight sometimes I think like oh this could have been cooler than some of the stuff I do now but to your point what you were saying is I think that the perception of stability probably scared me off and i wonder if it scares off like other people that would be really good fits for l and d roles Um, you know i i think there's potential that it has i think there is potential that people do get scared off however i also find that learning and development whether it's in schools you know with teachers whether it's in universities with professors or whether it's in the corporate setting with corporate trainers that it is something that people are typically pretty passionate about. Those people that are doing it typically are doing it because they really love it. And I know that's the case for me. I'm willing to accept the risk because I really, really love what I do. Now, having said that, I'm now self-employed. I have my own learning and development company. So I don't have to worry about me being laid off. because It's me, you know, bossing me around. However... There's also a risk inherent with that, and that is, you know, when companies are tightening belts, they're not going to necessarily reach out to a third-party vendor. Right, right. Or maybe they will, because if they are letting go of their in-house trainers, maybe they will hire a third-party vendor to do things here and there. So that brings us back to the opportunity again. If I am an outside vendor, can I look at this and can I say to a company, hey, you don't have internal training staff how can I, you know, on a one-off or, you know, a series of things, satisfy your training needs without having the cost to be quite as high as a salary would right. be? You know, right. so if I'm stepping totally. in there doing two or three $10,000 programs, that's yeah. significantly less expensive than a salaried person. So there's opportunity there. Yep. But it does take away from that salaried person who's working right. in-house. Yeah. So now let me ask you about like this generational discussion because I feel <laughs> like it comes up a lot in the L&D context. <laughs> yeah. I was doing something for a company in like early 2019 and they asked <laughs> me to write a whole paper on this. So like do you think inherently that like a 25-year-old in a company learns that differently from a 65 year old i mean i could see reasons why i could also see reasons why not so like do you think the generational thing is overplayed obviously you should like meet people where they're at in terms of like learning and competency needs but like what's your take on the whole um like oh every generation has some specific way they need to be taught to do you buy into that or what's your take on all that 
It's 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 like you see into my soul, Ted. <laughs> That's a great question. So I am going to go on record as saying I'm one of those people, even though I am not a millennial, I am a Gen Xer. Um, I have, have been one of these people that has been very vocal about defending millennials. I don't find them to be entitled people who just want the world handed to them at all. I find that they are willing to dig in and learn just as somebody who is in his or her 60s or 50s or 30s, or sorry, 40s. So, um, you know, I find that, yes, okay, there are some generational differences. For example, somebody who is in his 60s will approach things differently than somebody who is in his 20s. There is life experience. There is... Um, Uh, ways of doing things. It's what they have done in the past and what they have learned works for them and what doesn't work for them. So those things absolutely come into play. But the same thing holds true for the younger generations in that if they have learned to embrace something in a certain way, they also have a lack of patience with those who don't embrace it. So you have, we always talk about that technology divide. I think in terms of using technological tools, you know, like what you would normally use in office space, that is pretty, you know, across the board. There really isn't any difference there. I think it's in terms of, you know, acceptance of ways of learning, ways of gaining information that provides a difference. Now, having said that, okay, it's true that somebody in their 20s or 30s is absolutely more inclined to pick up their smartphone and just Google something really, really quickly or what have you. And somebody in their 60s may be more inclined to ask a question of a peer rather than immediately look it up on Google or whatever. But I actually did a poll in the last company I worked for, my last corporate gig. I think it bears mentioning it was a tech company. And I did a poll across across the company, various positions, various departments, various age groups, uh, various educational backgrounds, etc. And I found that overwhelmingly people wanted their training, they preferred their training face to face. They wanted in classroom training primarily. And that was because then they were taken away from their jobs, their day to day jobs. And they had the opportunity to focus on what they were learning and to share ideas you know, around a table and with others. So they really liked that aspect. But then the divide came after that. So people of younger generations really prefer to learn by video and people of older generations preferred to learn by online learning which I thought was really hmm. interesting. You know, yeah. they wanted to be maybe led through it a little bit more, whereas the younger people wanted to explore. So I that loops back to what I was saying before about how they take information in. You know, people who are a bit younger have been raised on gaining information by video. Yeah. And, so now, yeah. do you, like, kind of in the same vein of that survey, do you think that, Obviously, tech is like a force multiplier. It provides mm-hmm. more efficiency, and you can reach more people faster with like a learning module or whatever using different forms of technology. Do you ever think that for all the benefits of technology, maybe we've gone too far in that direction where we're like 
we're removing the uh, responsibility and accountability of like managers and team leads to be uh, accountable to like doing that stuff face to face and in person too. Like maybe we're putting too much of it into like software suites and tech programs and we're like almost absolving some managers of that responsibility. Do you ever think that? <laughs> oh, yes. Again, <laughs> you're seeing into my soul, Ted. So, okay. Um, you mentioned something before with the last question you were talking about. You said, obviously we need to meet them where they live, where they right. are. Right, right. And it's true. We do. We need to meet each learner where they are. And that includes in their roles in their departments and their teams. So let's go back to the technology. Technology can provide information. It can even, I know some e-learning designers that are super talented in mm -hmm. what they do and they provide things that are really or sorry, um, engaging at the same time as they are educational. They entertain the learners so the learners actually want to go through an online learning man manual. Right. However, uh, the thing is, uh, well, what we know about online learning, for example, is people tend to have a click through it and then just do the test and then it's gone yeah. sort of attitude. So unless there is some sort of reinforcement of it on the job, they're not going to retain it. The same thing holds true with classroom learning. If I have somebody in a classroom, I know that by the time they walk out the door, three quarters of what I have talked about is gone. Is gone. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and so I need to make sure that that one quarter they retain before they even leave the room is the important stuff. And then I need to emphasize 10% of it because that's what they'll retain, period, is 10% of it. And I need to make sure that that's the super important stuff. Now, if the managers are supporting the efforts, whether it's online learning, whether it's self-directed learning, you know, researching articles or what have you, or whether it's classroom-based learning, the really imperative thing is that there is coaching and support from right. the managers on the job so that it's applied. And when that happens, wow, learning is exponentially greater and productivity is exponentially greater as a result. But I do believe what you said is true. There are a great many managers who think, okay, you've learned this. You should know how to do it. Right. And they and absolve themselves it of it. It doesn't work that way. And in fact, I've actually heard managers say that to people, to their people. You know what? You, you were trained in this. You should know how to do it. Right. Ugh, so it would, you say, would you say from your experience in L&D, mm -hmm. um, what is the number one thing for intermediate term to longer term retention of something? Is it just like application? Because I, I would assume it's like the way that it's presented mm -hmm. or taught is probably important. But I would think like the number one factor for like long-term usage, long-term retention would be like application and modeling support. Right? Is that accurate, would you say? Yes, that's. I think that's very accurate. So it's a combination of several things. Firstly, uh, if we take it from the very beginning of the training stage, the people who are designing the training, and generally speaking, those are the L&D people, you know, they're often the people who are also presenting it in whatever way it's done. Those people should be liaising with the company leaders and the managers of those 
particular departments to determine what is important and what is the language they want used. What are the details that will help this training to stick, to make it sound like it belongs to the actual job that's being done. So right in the design process, that should be inherent. What are the objectives after training what, that must be met? What does it sound like? What does it look like? What does it feel like? So that they can then apply it on the job. The second thing that I think is really crucial is to have resources available, references available for follow-up later, either recording sessions, either making sure that the videos are or the online learning is always available so they can go back to it, creating a manual that they can download and use as a reference tool, whatever it looks like, if it's an infographic, whatever it looks like, having some sort of reference tool available so that people, when they get to it, they can say, oh, yeah, I learned this in training, but I just don't remember. And they can go back to that reference tool. Finally, though, and you you said it perfectly, the biggest contributor to the actual learning process is the on-the-job aspect. And the more support and coaching they get from managers or from other people who are team leads, perhaps, or there to support the learning, you know, there are oftentimes peer-to-peer coaching things that work extremely well. And those are the sorts of things people really need to make the knowledge transfer to the job. I think that's crucial. And it all starts with the design. And even before the design, it all starts with the conversation amongst all the stakeholders, the training and development people, the leaders and what are their objectives, the department managers, the peer-to-peer, the peer coaches, all of those people. What does it look like? What does it sound like? What do they need? How do we put it, this into effect? And then how are you going to support the learning? In terms of the learning itself, I have always believed it's a 50-50. So what that means is the people who provide the learning Their half of the responsibility is to put forward the knowledge and the ideas that the the learner needs to grasp onto. But there's also half of the responsibility lying with the learner. Are they there to learn? Do they have that mindset to learn? Now, I I have literally had people come into training sessions and, you know, sit there going, yeah. The reason I'm here is because my boss told me I had to be here. I didn't really right. want to be. Right. I, you know, and okay, good for you. Thank I you for telling me. Like, <laughs> I would assume that's like 30 to 40 percent at some trainings. Oh, yeah. It depends on, you know, for me, what I've been experiencing when I was an in-house trainer is, yes, it's sometimes it's, I would say it's around 20 to 30 percent. You know, they'll sit there and it's like, prove it to me that you're good. And then if they have a right. good experience, the next time they come in, they're all in. But I right. think a lot of times people are at training because their manager made them go. Now, the best antidote to that kind of attitude is for the trainer to be a good trainer, you know, to be interesting, yeah. to provide hands-on experiences, to understand adult learning principles how, you know, how do I shake this up? How do I incorporate activities and exercises to inspire thinking and to inspire learning? And then those people who were a little bit, you know, uh, reticent at the beginning tend to embrace it. And I, you know, I had one guy say to me at the beginning, 
yeah, I'm here because my boss made me go. I hate training. I don't want to be here. And he left the room saying, I did not expect it to be like this. This was great. Thank you very that's much. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you uh, know, that's the power uh, of, of good, good, um, well-designed training session where everybody is in it for the win. Let me ask you a question about spacing, because I always get tripped up on this. Is like, mm-hmm. I think most people would agree that if you go to like a two, three day training and it's kind of like, you know, you're bringing in different people from a company to talk about their silo or their division. Mm-hmm. And it's like <laughs> a lot of slide decks and it's a lot of listening and there's not really like thinking uh, activity, whatever based uh concepts throughout usually those trainings kind of suck where you're just like being (laughs) talked to the whole time and a lot of a lot of the presenters even if they're like really successful within a company and they run a division whatever like sometimes they'll just read whatever slides they prepared and it just feels like you're going from like one being talked at to another and that like, even as I'm saying this, I can think of, like, two or three in my own life that I've been to that were like that, right? So oh, yeah. how do you, like, do you have a formula or a best practice for, like, how do you break it up? Is there, like, a ratio so that, like, people can be, like, more interested or active or, like, kind of use their thinking uh, muscle, thinking part of the brain uh, more within it? Because, like... The ones where you just get talked at are brutal, and I think mm-hmm. everyone would say that. So is there, like, a formula best practice uh, in general in, in, in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. There are formulas. You bet. And, and you think we've all heard that, you know, a while ago there was that uh, phrase going out there that people have the attention span of a goldfish and uh, actually maybe yeah, even yeah. shorter than a goldfish. Right. And, you know, that uh, that may not be quite so true. But it is true what you said. So people are subjected so frequently to these marathon sessions with all kinds of speakers who are droning on and on about all kinds of stuff that's happening in their department. Some of it is relevant to the listeners. Some of it is not. Yeah. And they tend, yeah, and they tend to zone out. So... What we learn with adult learning principles is, uh, firstly, you should change it up about every 20 minutes or so. Even 20 minutes is kind of pushing it. So if you are lecturing for 20 minutes, you need to then change it up with an activity. Get people involved with something. Get them hands-on. Get them talking to their neighbor. Get them up and moving in some sort of way. Do something that gets them into a different space either mentally or physically or both so I know when I am doing these long full day sessions I incorporate a lot of activities and I'll include things that sometimes seem like I don't get it you know where people are looking at me like what are you kidding me and um, I shake them up with this I know one time I had a group of software developers that, you know, they're very analytical, linear thinkers. That's what they do best. And they walked into the training room, and what they saw in front of everybody's seat was a coil of string and a thing of Post-it notes. Mm -hmm. Well, right there, what they know is this isn't going to be the usual training session. Right. So, you know, and I, I talk a bit. I have them do something. In this particular case, 
what I was having them do was guess their assumption. You know, how do how well do they can they really measure what they think they know? So what they I asked them to do was put a post-it note on the wall behind them. That was about three or about a meter from the floor. So about 39 inches from the floor. Mm-hmm. And I had them put that post-it note on the wall. Then I had them turn back to the table and take that string and say, okay, now what I want you to do is measure out a piece of string that's about a meter long. And they had varying lengths of string. They, you know, I, I purposely did not get everybody the same length of string. Right. And it was really interesting thing watching people, you know, measure out what they thought was a meter. Mm-hmm. Now, remember so, what I just said. They had a meter gauge on the wall behind them. Uh, but almost nobody like a, measured against the wall. It was really yeah, interesting. And so like, when you're doing things like that, you're saying, hey, look, you made assumptions that were incorrect. Are you making assumptions yep. about your people that are incorrect? And drawing these parallels to make them think, make them move, make them talk to each other, make them laugh, and make them go, aha. I get it. And so every time, if we can switch people up a little bit, if we can have them moving around the room, if we can have them moving to a flip chart and writing down things, if we can have them talking to their neighbors and then or asking questions and standing up and taking a break every now and then, we can keep their focus then on the speaker. That's a yeah. that's a rule of thumb. It's actually like the thing with the meter thing that's actually kind of cool too is that yeah. – I feel like a big problem in general business right now um, that we don't, not enough people are really addressing, but a big problem is like, okay, we have this presupposition that everything is like data driven and we're going to make all these decisions on data, but like, Mm -hmm. it's very powerful for human beings to like trust their gut, trust their intuition yeah. Like try to go at it by themselves, which like the meter thing to me kind of like perfectly illustrates. It's like, hey, you have the you have a, a resource that would tell you exactly how long a meter is like right there. And you're still mm-hmm. your default condition is like, I want to figure this out myself. Right. Yep. And yep. I just think it's like that's a thing that I've only heard. Like, I think the only like quote unquote like big name person I've ever heard bring this up is like Stephen Dubner who does Freakonomics it's like mm-hmm. you can't just say that everything is data driven because people have this like huge desire to like use their intuition and prove that they're right or that they know what they're doing right and they don't mm-hmm. want to just look at data and be like okay the data says we should do this because that it like kind of re- reduces their relevance um in a way which goes into this next thing i was going to ask you so like i i did something in 2019 like early 2019 with this lms company and they were like kind of early stage they had funding it's not like a big name learning company or whatever but Mm -hmm. okay they wanted to brand around the idea of like they democratize learning or they make Mm -hmm. learning free And, like, I know a lot of brands kind of use that type of messaging, right? So we had all these meetings, and, like, a lot of the people in these meetings were, like, for better or worse, yes, man. And Mm -hmm. they were saying, like, that's great, that's perfect, right? So in one meeting, I said, like, okay, I think it's a good message, and you can run with it for sure. 
It's just my concern is that to kind of what I was just talking about. I don't think a lot of people, especially in big organizations, it might be better in smaller ones, but I don't think a lot of people actually want learning to be free or democratized because I think that implies that like the knowledge and the information that you have, that you specifically possess, it's not as important anymore if everybody can possess it, right? So that might reduce your individual importance so especially if you're like threatened by your position or it's like a big company that's very political, like I don't think those types of people want learning to be free or democratic. <laughs> so like what's your general take on that? Do you think that like people want the idea of like all information being de- democratically free and available? Obviously p- companies have proprietary stuff, but like do you – do you think people want everything to be free and open or do you think there's still a degree where like people want information like clustered by expertise or whatever? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's a really broad question and there are right. several different ways of looking at it. I mean, firstly with um, in technology, we have a lot of stuff that's open source. So we have become used to getting things for free. We really have. And we have access to so much information that is free. So whether we are learners or whether we are providers, there is again this supposition that information can be gained for free. So that's one thing. But then there's the flip side, which is, oh my giddy aunt, there is like so many, you know, if you Google something and you get 2,397,000 returns on it, which is the one like we are inundated with information. We are absolutely inundated with it. So if we find a service that is providing information in a structured format, in a way that is going to give us exactly what we need, and it costs in the realm of affordability for us, it is worth it to have that curation, you know? So I think a lot of times what people are actually paying for is format, flow, and above all, curation. You know, it, it just makes their lives so much easier. Now, from a corporate perspective, the other thing is a lot of companies now are putting out content for free. They push right. out all kinds of content for free, but they hold back the really juicy stuff. And you will yeah. see even free platforms, even let's let's loop back to what we were talking about a while ago with Zoom. You know, they have a free service available, but they put restrictions on it. And so if you want more, then you ha- then you pay for it. So while they're great and you can do so much with the free version, you need to sometimes pay to get exactly what you need. And in a way, that's the same concept with learning. There is so much information available what do I specifically need? How can I pare this down to what I need so that I can get the job or so that I can then do the job or so I can lead the team properly or be productive or whatever the objectives are? And that's where I think learning and development provides an extremely valuable resource. We help curate information to what they need. And I think that's worth paying for. Honestly, I do. I really... I think that if people get what they need presented to them in the way they need it presented 
and it flows and it applies to their work, there's value in that. There's real value in that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, that's a very good answer because broadly that part always tripped me up, but I'd agree with your answer. Um, Okay, so last question I was going to ask you. What do you see, like, next, like, Okay, let's say we come out of this whole coronavirus with some quote-unquote semblance of normalcy, whatever. What do you Mm -hmm. think next, like, five years or so, what do you think is going to be, like, kind of the biggest uh, impact or shift in, like, how learning is delivered? Um, And it could just be an increasing trend and a shift that's already underway, but, Mm -hmm. like, what just based on like what you're seeing and clients that you work with, like what do you think is gonna what do you think is gonna be a bigger deal in the next five or so years? And if you want, um, you can add on like do you think kinda how we approach learning and the need for competent people and trained people is gonna shift at all because of this whole virus deal too? Hmm. Okay. Wow, that's a very large question. Okay, so let's talk about what we're learning now versus what we knew before. We are learning now. um, Okay, actually, let me back it up a little bit. My clients, the work I do is typically with middle managers and new managers. I work with them because so often, and you know, you actually posted this in in an article recently, and I was so glad you did. What you said is that, Managers typically are, or people get their first manager position typically around the age of 30, oh, yeah, but they yeah, get yeah. their first manager training at 42. So there's a 12 year gap. And I love the way that you put it. I think you, yeah. you know, you talked about they are starting in kindergarten and then they're in <laughs> well into high school before yeah, they get any training, like right? You know, college, yeah. yeah. So to me, um, that's where I live. I'm trying to get companies to address that gap. And I think that that's a a massive thing that is coming to light. The coronavirus and the fact that we have now had to move to remote work has has brought up this problem of manager of the manager team member gap. You know, the connection is not there and the managers are dealing with team members who not only are working remotely and therefore may be feeling disconnected. But they're also feeling afraid and feeling the stress and they've got their kids running around and maybe they're sharing a workspace with their spouse who also has to be home from work. And depending on the spousal, you know, working situation, I, you know, it can be really tough to be that close quartered with people. Maybe you have sick relatives that are, are causing you concern there. As I said, there is fear, there is stress, there is isolation and loneliness that people are having to work through and they need the connection with their coworkers that they experienced when they were in the office. So managers are now in this situation where not only are they a little bit out of touch with their team members and let's face it, they probably were anyway in the workplace because most managers are, but now it's remote and they don't know what to do. And when they're having a meeting with somebody and they say, how's it going? And that person starts crying, which is happening. I've been hearing this from my clients. You know, how do I deal with this? Well, this causes a lot of stress in the manager. So 
we see a rise in managers needing to make connection. We also see a stronger awareness that managers don't know how to make connections. So the World Economic Forum stated at the beginning of 2020 that the, the skill sets for managers moving into the future that are really going to be in demand are soft skills. And it all comes around communication. How do they make connection with their team members? So I think that's going to be the biggest thing for me, for my business, and maybe for learning and development in general, is we're going to see a need, a push towards gaining these soft skills, which we really should have had anyway. And we can do this remotely. It's changing things from learning a lecture to hands-on and support, coaching, mentoring, all of those sorts of things. That's going to become key in the future. Now, it, we have also learned that we can embrace technology and use it the way that we probably always should have used it. So instead of droning on and on a webinar, maybe we can get creative and bring some activities to these webinars. Forget just the slides. We've learned we need that human connection, you know, eye contact, speaking to people, not reading off a set of slides, but actually speaking to people and getting them involved and working the breakout rooms and all these tools that technology makes available. So I think learning and development will be embracing that more and more in the future. We've had to do it now and because we know it and we've had a taste of how to use it, maybe we'll get much better at doing that. And then finally, I, I believe that with this virus, we are gaining a real appreciation for how important the person is, the human is. Not just the technology, not just the task, but the human. So that to me is going to be a huge learning from this. And I hope, I truly hope that that becomes a habit. Keeping the human in this is, is what I really want to embrace going forward.